Chapter Seven of the Green Rust by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Kirsten Weber. The Green Rust by Edgar Wallace. Chapter Seven. Plain Words from Mr. Beale. Oliver Cresswell did not feel at all sleepy, so she discovered by the time she was ready for bed. To retire in that condition of wakefulness meant another sleepless night and she slipped a kimono over her head, found a book, and settled into the big wicker chair under the light for the half-hour's reading which would reduce her to the necessary state of drowsiness. The book, at any other time, would have held her attention, but now she found her thoughts wandering. On the other side of the wall, she regarded it with a new interest, was the young man who had so strangely intruded himself into her life or was he out? What would a man like that do with his evenings? He was not the sort of person who could find any pleasure in making a round of music halls, or sitting up half the night in a card-room. She heard a dull knock, and it came from the wall. Mr. Beale was at home, then. He had pushed a chair against the wall, or he was knocking in nails at this hour of the night. Thud, thud, thud. A pause. Thud, tap, thud, tap. The dull sound was as if made by a fist, the tap by a fingertip. It was repeated. Suddenly the girl jumped up with a little laugh. He was signaling to her, and had sent O.C., her initials. She tapped three times with her finger, struck once with the flat of her hand, and tapped again. She had sent the understood message. Presently he began, and she jotted the message on the margin of her book. Most urgent. Don't use soap. Bring it to office. She smiled faintly. She expected something more brilliant in the way of humor, even from Mr. Beale. She tapped, acknowledged, and went to bed. Matilda, my innocent child, she said to herself, as she snuggled up under the bedclothes, Exchanging midnight signals with a lodger is neither proper nor ladylike. She had agreed with herself that, in spite of the latitude she was now allowed in the matter of office hours, that she would put in an appearance punctually at ten. This meant rising not later than eight, for she had her little household to put in order before she left. It was the postman's insistent knocking at eight-thirty, that woke her from a dreamless sleep, and, half awake, she dragged herself into her dressing-gown and went to the door. "'Parcel, miss,' said the invisible official, and put into the hand that came round the edge of the door a letter and a small package. She brought them to her sitting-room and pulled back the curtains. The letter was typewritten and was on the note-paper of a well-known firm of perfumers, it was addressed to Miss Oliver Cresswell, and ran, Dear Madam, we have pleasure in sending you, for your use, a sample cake of our new complexion soap, which we trust will meet with your approval. But how nice, she said, and wondered why she had been singled out for the favor. She opened the package. In a small carton, carefully wrapped in the thinnest paper, was an oval tablet of lavender-coloured soap that exhaled a delicate fragrance. 
"'But how nice!' she said again, and put the gift in the bathroom. This was starting the day well, a small enough foundation for happiness, yet one which every woman knows, for happiness is made up of small and acceptable things, and, given the psychological moment, a bunch of primroses has a greater value than a rope of pearls. In her bath she picked up the soap and dropped it back in the tidy again quickly. Don't use soap. Bring it to office. She remembered the message in a flash. Beale had known that this parcel was coming then, and his most urgent warning was not a joke. She dressed quickly, made a poor breakfast, and was at the office ten minutes before the hour. She found her employer waiting, sitting in his accustomed place on the edge of the table in her office. He gave her a little nod of welcome, and without a word stretched out his hand. This soap? she asked. He nodded. She opened her bag. Good, he said. I see you have kept the wrappings, and that, I presume, is the letter which accompanied the, what shall I say, gift? Don't touch it with your bare hand, he said quickly. Handle it with the paper. He pulled his gloves from his pocket and slipped them on, then took the cake of soap in his hand and carried it to the light, smelt it, and returned it to its paper. Now let me see the letter. She handed it to him, and he read it. From Brandon, the perfumers. They wouldn't be in it, but we had better make sure. He walked to the telephone and gave a number, and the girl heard him speaking in a low tone to somebody at the other end. Presently he put down the receiver and walked back, his hands thrust into his pockets, they know nothing about this act of generosity, he said. By this time she had removed her coat and hat and hung them up and had taken her place at her desk. She sat with her elbows on the blotting pad, her chin on her clasped hands, looking up at him. I don't think it's fair that things should be kept from me any longer, she said. Many mysterious things have happened in the past few days, and since they have all directly affected me, I think I am entitled to some sort of explanation. I think you are, said Mr. Beale, with a twinkle in his grey eyes, but I am not prepared to explain everything just yet. This much I will tell you, that had you used the soap this morning, by the evening, you would have been covered from head to foot in a rather alarming and irritating rash. She gasped. But who dared to send me this? He shrugged his shoulders. Who knows? But first let me ask you this, Miss Cresswell. Suppose to-night, when you had looked at yourself in the glass, you had discovered your face was covered with red blotches, and on further examination you found your arms, and indeed the whole of your body, similarly disfigured, what would you have done? She thought for a moment. Why, of course, I should have sent for the doctor. Which doctor? he asked carelessly. Dr. Van Herden. Oh! she looked at him resentfully. You don't suggest that Dr. Van Herden sent that hideous thing to me? I don't suggest anything, said Mr. Beale coolly. I merely say that you would have sent for a doctor, and that that doctor would have been Dr. Van Herden. 
I say further that he would have come to you and been very sympathetic, and would have ordered you to remain in bed for four or five days. I think, too, he said, looking up at the ceiling and speaking slowly, as though he were working out the possible consequences in his mind, that he would have given you some very palatable medicine. "'What are you insinuating?' she asked quietly. He did not reply immediately. "'If you will get out of your mind the idea that I have any particular grievance against Dr. Van Herden, that I regard him as a rival, a business rival, let us say, or that I have some secret grudge against him, and if in place of that suspicion you would believe that I am serving a much larger interest than is apparent to you, I think we might discuss—he smiled—even Dr. Van Herden, without such a discussion giving offence to you. She laughed. I am really not offended. I am rather distressed, if anything, she said, knitting her brows. You see, Dr. Van Hadden has always been most kind to me. Beale nodded. He got you your rooms at the flats, he replied quietly. He was also ready to give you employment the moment you were providentially discharged from Punsonby's. Does it not strike you, Miss Cresswell, that every kind act of Dr. Van Herden's has had a tendency to bring you together, into closer association, I mean? Does it not appear to you that the net result of all the things that might have happened to you in the past few days would have been to make you more and more dependent upon Dr. Van Herden? For example, if you had gone into his employ, as he planned that you should? Planned! she gasped. His face was grave now, and the laughter had gone out of his eyes. Planned, he said quietly. You were discharged from Punsonby's at Dr. Van Herden's instigation. I will not believe it. That will not make it any less the fact, said Mr. Beale. You were nearly arrested, again, at Dr. Van Herden's instigation. He was waiting for you when you came back from Punsonby's, ready to offer you his job. When he discovered you had already engaged yourself, he telephoned to White, instructing him to have you arrested, so that you might be disgraced, and might turn to him, your one loyal friend. She listened speechless. She could only stare at him, and could not even interrupt him, for her shrewd woman's instinct told her so convincingly that even her sense of loyalty could not eject the doubt which assailed her mind, that if there was not truth in what he was saying, there was at least probability. I suggest even more, Beale went on. I suggest that for some purpose Dr. Van Herden desires to secure a mental, physical, and moral ascendancy over you. In other words, he wishes to enslave you to his will. She looked at him in wonder, and burst into a peal of ringing laughter. "'Really, Mr. Beale, you are too absurd,' she said. "'Aren't I?' he smiled. "'It sounds like something out of a melodrama. Why on earth should he want to secure a mental ascendancy over me? 
do you suggest?' she flushed. "'I suggest nothing any longer,' said Beale, slipping off from the end of the table. "'I merely make a statement of fact. I do not think he has any designs on you within the conventional meaning of that phrase. Indeed, I think he wants to marry you. What do you think about that?' She had recovered something of her poise, and her sense of humour was helping her out of a situation which, without such a gift, might have been an embarrassing one. "'I think you have been seeing too many plays, and reading too many exciting books, Mr. Beale,' she said. "'I confess I have never regarded Dr. Van Herden as a possible suitor, and if I thought he was, I should be immensely flattered. But may I suggest to you that there are other ways of winning a girl than by giving her nettle rash? They laughed together. All right, he said, swinging up his hat. Proceed with the good work and seek out the various domiciles of Mr. Scobbs. Then she remembered. Do you know? He was at the door when she spoke, and he stopped and turned. The name of Mr. Scobbs gives me a cold shiver. Why? Answer me this, she said. Why should I, who have never heard of him before until yesterday, hear his name mentioned by a perfect stranger? The smile died away from his face. Who mentioned him? No, it isn't idle curiosity, he said, in face of her derisive finger. I am really serious. Who mentioned his name? A visitor of Dr. Van Herden's. I heard them talking through the ventilator while I was bolting my door. A visitor to Dr. Van Herden, and he mentioned Mr. Scobbs of Red Horse Valley, he said half to himself. You didn't see the man? No. You just heard him? No names were mentioned? None, she said. Is it frightfully important, madam? It is, rather, he replied. We have got to get busy. And with this cryptic remark, he left her. The day passed as quickly as its predecessor. The tabulation at which she was working grew, until by the evening there was a pile of sheets in the left-hand cupboard, covered with her fine writing. She might have done more, but for the search she had to make for a missing report, to verify one of her facts. It was not on the shelf, and she was about to abandon her search and postpone the confirmation till she saw Beale, when she noticed a cupboard beneath the shelves. It was unlocked, and she opened it and found, as she had expected, that it was full of books, amongst which was the missing documentation she sought. With a view to future contingencies, she examined the contents of the cupboard, and was arrested by a thin volume which bore no inscription or title on its blank cover. She opened it, and on the title page read, The Millenborn Murder. The author's name was not given, and the contents were made up of a very careful analysis of evidence given by the various witnesses at the inquest, and plans and diagrams with little red crosses to show where every actor in the tragedy had been. She read the first page idly, and turned it. She was halfway down the second page when she uttered a little exclamation, for a familiar name was there, 
the name of Dr. Van Herden. Fascinated, she read the story to the end, half expecting that the name of Mr. Beale would occur. There were many names, all unknown to her, and the one that occurred with the greatest frequency was that of James Kitson. Mr. Beale did not appear to have played any part. She read for an hour, sitting on the floor by the cupboard. She reached the last page, closed the book, and slipped it back in the cupboard. She wondered why Beale had preserved this record, and whether his antagonism to the doctor was founded on that case. At first she thought she identified him with the mysterious man who had appeared in the plantation before the murder, but a glance back at the description of the stranger dispelled that idea. For all the reputation he had, Mr. Beale did not have an inflamed, swollen countenance, colorless, bloodshot eyes, nor was he bald. She was annoyed with herself that she had allowed her work to be interrupted, and in penance decided to remain on until six instead of five o'clock, as she had intended. Besides, she half expected that Mr. Beale would return, and was surprised to discover that she was disappointed that he had not at six o'clock she dismissed the boy, closed and locked the office, and made her way downstairs into the crowded street. To her surprise, she heard her name spoken, and turned to face Dr. Van Herden. "'I have been waiting for you for nearly an hour,' he said, with good-humoured reproach. "'And your patients are probably dying like flies,' she countered. It was in her mind to make some excuse and go home alone, but curiosity got the better of her, and impelled her to wait to discover the object of this unexpected visitation. "'How did you know where I was working?' she asked, as the thought occurred to her. He laughed. "'It was a very simple matter. I was on my way to a patient, and I saw you coming out to lunch,' he said. "'and as I found myself in the neighbourhood an hour ago, "'I thought I would wait and take you home. "'You are doing a very foolish thing,' he added. "'What do you mean, in stopping to talk to you "'when I ought to be on my way home for tea?' "'No, in engaging yourself to a man like Bill. "'You know the reputation he has, my dear girl. "'I was shocked when I discovered who your employer was.' "'I don't think you need to distress yourself on my account, doctor,' she said quietly. "'Really, Mr. Beale is quite pleasant. In his lucid moments,' she smiled to herself. She was not being disloyal to her employer. If he chose to encourage suspicion in his mode of life, he must abide by the consequences. "'But a drunkard, far!' the exquisite doctor shivered. "'I have always tried to be a friend of yours, Miss Cresswell, "'and I hope you are going to let me continue to be, "'and my advice to you in that capacity is give Mr. Beale notice.' "'How absurd you are!' she laughed. "'There's no reason in the world why I should do anything of the kind. "'Mr. Beale has treated me with the greatest consideration.' "'What is he, by the way?' asked the doctor. "'He's an agent of some sort.' said the girl, but I am sure you don't want me to discuss his business, and now I must go, doctor, if you will excuse me. One moment, 
he begged. "'I have a cab here. Won't you come and have tea somewhere?' "'Where is somewhere?' she asked. "'The Grand Alliance?' he suggested. She nodded slowly. End of chapter 7 Recorded by Kirsten Weber